0: As we approach Veterans Day, we'll tell you about a potentially groundbreaking new study that might standardize the process of using horses to help soldiers with PTSD. Plus, the reflections of an Allied soldier at Normandy who went on to a prolific sports casting career, which often included horse racing. Jack Whitaker, 94 years young, will join us on a very special Veterans Day edition of In the Gate. They're about to
1: move in. They Race after. and they're off. As they move to the top of the space, it's a hit-loving finish.
0: This is In the Gate, ESPN's Thoroughbred Racing Podcast. My name is Barry Abrams. You can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. You can also get us on our YouTube channel by searching In The Gate Podcast. You can get us on SoundCloud as well. Get us at the iTunes Store or TuneIn.com. You can get us on that little pink podcatcher app on your phone you didn't even know you had. And now you can subscribe to In The Gate in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In The Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. Over the years on this podcast, we've spent some time showing you how horses and equine therapy are being used to help soldiers who suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder. PTSD is a mental health problem that can develop after a person experiences a traumatic event, like a natural disaster, or in the case of soldiers, combat. Did you know that nearly 20 soldiers with PTSD commit suicide every day? More than 7,000 a year. Organizations like Saratoga Warhorse, Horse, HorseAbility, and the Thoroughbred Retirement Foundation provide opportunities for anyone suffering from a mental illness to work with horses. Many soldiers have said that cleaning and bathing horses, walking them, feeding them, and that sort of thing have done wonders to improve their mental health. Some say that they can now sleep at night after having nightmare flashbacks to battle scenes they were in. Yet all of the results to this point have been anecdotal. There really hasn't been a definitive study to quantify what so many have reported qualitatively. But now, a comprehensive study is being done at Columbia University. It's called the man o war Project, with the hope that the study will establish best practices in using equine therapy to treat veterans with PTSD. Underwriting much of the cost of this study is Earl Mack, a former Army First Lieutenant who is currently a member of the New York Racing Association Board of Directors. Now, the study isn't completely finished, but it is fairly close. So, with Veterans Day just around the corner, let's get a sense of where the research is headed. To do that, we're joined by Dr. Yuval Neria and Dr. Prudence Fisher, co-directors of the Man-O-War Project at Columbia University. So, Dr. Fisher, what is it about horses as opposed to more common domestic pets like cats and dogs that make them so well-suited for PTSD therapy?
2: Well, I think there, there are two things. First of all, often when people are using dogs or cats or other animals, they're using them as sort of support animals. There are some service dogs, but even with service dogs, they're helping you when you're having symptoms, and they're helping you protect you against symptoms. What we're doing is more a treatment study. You don't take a horse on an airplane with you, although apparently you can take many horses now. But it's something where, you know, what we're doing is setting it up as an actual treatment where you go once a week for eight weeks. Now, why are horses good for this? I think horses are particularly suited for it because they're prey animals. So they're hypervigilant and on the lookout for danger, similar to people with PTSD. They're herd animals, so they're social, which is important, and they seek out contact. They're big, and they're very reactive, and you notice if a horse reacts to you. So in a lot of ways, they're like big mirrors. And since they're, they're looking out for danger, they're very attuned to what's going on with people and you know, in the environment, so they're really they're really good for it on the other hand i can <laughs> I can say I feel like i'm I wouldn't have said that three years ago because i didn't didn't really know the field at all and what people were doing for equine therapy, but yeah, for a number of reasons, horses seem particularly suited to this.
0: Well, it's interesting you say that, Doctor Neria. Did your team enter this study thinking there were equine-assisted therapy practices that were not good or should not be done?
3: No, I haven't thought so. I thought that there is a potential here that can be explored uh, in order to advance treatment for PTSD. So, what we are struggling with is, which is a reality for war veterans. We we have established a veterans clinic here at Columbia Psychiatry about three years ago, and we have noticed that many veterans have no interest in current treatments, or they don't really f- feel that they are benefited from current treatments. So, so we we are generally eager to explore kind of different avenues for for veterans, and we saw that equine-assisted therapy is is a worthwhile to explore.
2: But, you know, we started looking at this, and we didn't know anything about equine therapy. And so we visited a bunch of programs, and what we noticed was that there wasn't a uniform way of doing it, that the programs were quite different from one another. There wasn't like a manual, like how do you do equine-assisted therapy. And people were just doing very different things. So in terms of studying it where, if it worked, we had to come up with, well, what what was it, right? Like, what, what were we doing? And so we actually had to design a procedure for um, giving equine-assisted therapy because to study something, you have to define it. You have to know that everybody's doing the same thing. So I think personally I was surprised that there weren't, any manuals, and the other thing is researchers, we look at the research, there also wasn't very much research on it.
3: But on the other hand, Prudence, there was already quite a bit of kind of anecdotal...
2: Yes, there's a lot of anecdotal support.
3: ...that that gave us the confidence that we may have, you know, that there is something here that is worthwhile really to examine, right?
2: Yeah, Absolutely.
0: Now, according to the project's website, this study is done in small groups of about three to six soldiers and two to three horses. Each program lasts eight weeks. Now, first of all, how do you determine which soldiers and which horses are used?
2: Well, first of all, they're veterans, not soldiers, okay? And they can be veterans of anything. And although it's called the man of war Project, we've had about 35 to 40 percent are women. man of war is a horse, a famous horse, that's why you know, man-of-war veterans. But, you know, it's being run like you do any study that's done in our department, psychiatry, and that people call us up who think they might be eligible. They undergo a screening interview to see if they might be eligible. Then they're brought in. They come to our offices. They have a full clinical evaluation with staff here to see if, indeed, they have PTSD.
0: Well, when you bring them in, what are you looking for?
3: We, we assess them clinically, first of all. They, they, they come to us with the feeling that they suffer from PTSD, but in order to make sure that they have the diagnosis, we assess them clinically with standardized instruments and, and assessments in order to make sure that everybody indeed has PTSD. And then we determine whether they are qualified for the project. So I'm saying that not because we are doing anything kind of too formal and too arbitrary. We just want to make sure that all our patients have a kind of similar conditions. And we do that because combat trauma or any other military trauma may be resulted in a host of problems. You know, some people develop substance use problems, some of them are develop depression uh, or anxiety problems. This treatment is really developed in order to treat post-traumatic stress disorder, which is a signature disorder in military personnel who experience trauma. So once we determine uh, with the patient that he or she suffers from PTSD, we offer them to enroll in in our program. This is with regard to the human side and with regard to the horse side, it is important for us that the same horse will be available across the lifespan of the treatment and we also make sure that horses are kind of well trained and relatively quiet and social and in order to, uh, to fit this program. So there is a, there is a sense that um, those horses that work with us are not dangerous in any way. And they are kind of compatible with the expectations because horses are, some of them may be skittish, some of them may be a little bit too aggressive. This is not the horses that, that really are, we are looking for in this program.
0: So you're not looking for horses that are going to make it a little bit difficult for the veteran to earn the trust of the horse? Do you not want to make the veteran work hard to earn the trust of the horse?
3: Well, that's very interesting uh, what you just said, Barry, because it's really about trust here. This program is really designed in order to touch upon issues of trust in both you know, the veteran and the animal because trust is really um, one of the things that is disrupted among patients with PTSD, uh, especially patients with PTSD that have been abused or or assaulted uh, previously. So trust is a big issue, but we cannot take kind of excessive risk with regard to the horses. So the horses are really part of the therapy Team, and as such, we need them to be kind of fully trained and fully collaborative. So, no, we don't see the horses as our patients here.
2: I mean, but I mean, in terms of the horses, they are still reactive. I mean, they are horses, you know. Mm-hmm. And basically, in each group, we have two horses, and they're typically have somewhat different personalities. Like one could be a little harder to get to know and the other one's much more relaxed. So there's sort of a balance between the horses. So it's not like, you know, like when sometimes you go someplace like the Grand Canyon or something and the horses, like they're like push-button horses. These aren't the horses that we're using. We I mean, we have horses that have distinct personality, but and we're very lucky because the person who runs the barn knows all the horses really well and knows how they sort of fit together in terms of personality. So, I mean you still have to earn something with the horse, but we're not worried that the horse is going to bite you, or we're not worried that the horse is having its own sort of emotional adjustment problem, you know, in a group.
0: In just a few minutes, the legendary Jack Whitaker will be here to discuss both his days as an army soldier and his legendary sports casting career which included, of course, thoroughbred racing. But for the moment, we continue with Dr. Yuval Neria and Dr. Prudence Fisher of Columbia University. They are co-directors of the man of war Project that aims to establish best practices for equine-assisted therapy for PTSD. Now, how do you create measurable data points from the, for lack of a better term, subjective tasks that a soldier will do with a horse, like feeding them, walking them, bathing them, etc.?
3: So interestingly enough, we treat this project as we treat all clinical trials. So what we do here, we assess patients through the course of the treatment before, during, and after the treatment at two time points, and we using our standardized measures of post-traumatic stress disorder, depression, functional impairment, etc. So I think that's the beauty of this project, that the assessment is really quantitative and in this regard can be publishable once we complete this project.
2: So what we're not doing is it's not a horsemanship. So they're not being graded on can they groom the horse correctly. It's a very experiential treatment. And what we're aiming to do is to lessen their PTSD symptoms, not make them horse experts.
0: Now, how do you measure that in terms of whether you've decreased their symptoms of PTSD?
3: Oh, okay. We we interview them with our psychiatrists, psychologists, and clinical assessors at four time points over the course of the treatment, as we do with any other treatment study that is conducted in our center.
0: So we know that your study's process is not complete yet, but what effects have you seen on the 50 or so veterans who have participated?
2: Well, so far, the results look good. I mean, we're doing the data analysis, and it'll be much more refined, but our general findings have been pretty positive, like really, it's positive
3: positive. We, we, we can share with, with your audience that our dropout rates are very low. The treatment is highly safe. And as Dr. Fisher was saying, our indicators are showing, or preliminary indicators are showing kind of very positive trends. And, and we, are, we are, in general, very hopeful about this study.
0: Now, we all know there are people who go through this kind of program, but really don't improve. Maybe as much as 40% of patients, though that's obviously not what you say you've found. What has your research told you about trying to reach them?
3: Well, that's a very good question. We we are very interesting to reach veterans who have tried uh, previous treatments and either didn't find them beneficial or or didn't improve at all. So... We are we are especially interested to help people who failed, you know, previous uh, treatment. So, so yeah, equine assisted treatment is, in fact, kind of very interesting to patients that some of them really lost hope that they will be ever helped by current treatment for PTSD. I
2: mean, one of the reasons that we were interested in this to begin with was because. There are a lot of treatments around that are very good, but not everybody benefits from everything. And, you know, they're burdensome. A lot of people drop out of treatment. So there's a, lot, there's a lot of room for alternative treatments or new treatments that are more acceptable to other patients.
0: What, if anything, has most surprised you about what you've found so far?
3: Well, I think what surprised us is that a couple of things that even people with some sort of physical disability can be benefited, uh, you know, uh, walking around the horses, connecting to them. We are surprised by how this treatment can augment or combine with other treatments that veterans are receiving in the VA system. So this treatment is it has the potential to be both standalone treatment but also combined or augmented to other treatments that are currently used in the VA systems.
0: We who deal in the horse racing business are used to working with odds, and the odds are that no matter how good the procedure is for using equine therapy for PTSD, you're not going to reach everyone. So once this study is complete... What would you both consider to be a successful result? What is success here?
3: So success. I mean, there, there are two definitions for success. One is kind of a statistical definition. When we when we see a dropped a drop or significant drop on the clinical measures, that is far beyond, you know, and kind of an accident or. So when we see such a drop, we will be convinced that this treatment is efficacious. This treatment can really help. That's one definition. And the other definition is that there will be sufficient interest from the PTSD community and from the veteran community to seek and to look for those kind of programs and hopefully to be and um, to be. To, to receive effective treatments in those programs so you know so the degree to which this will be good news for veterans will be a very positive surprise for us
2: I, I think another measure of success would be that there are a lot of people around who are doing equine therapy if they were interested in using our method and they had similar results and just you know and you know carefully evaluating people before they do what they're you know, what they're doing, and then seeing at the end, do people get better on, um, you know, some of their life problems? I, you know, because they're, you know, as as we said before, there have always been a lot of anecdotal reports that this really works, but they're anecdotes. People don't, don't systematically measure, you know, what they're doing before and after. So have people do that or or to... Like we, we think what we've developed is pretty good to see if other people can use it. And if they can use it and they have the similar, similar experience that, that we're having, that, that would be a big measure. Yeah. So. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, right. And it appears that the next step in the process after the study is complete is making sure it's adopted by all equine assisted providers. What is the process for that?
3: So there is actually good news about that. You know, we are working collaboratively with a number of kind of leading equine-assisted associations nationally, right? We are working with PATH path path. International uh, on a project that will disseminate our protocol to various equine programs across the country. So we are very interested really to, leverage this further once the studies is complete and the data is sufficiently convincing
0: health and horses what else could you possibly need as Veterans Day draws near good news here and we wish you continued success Dr. Yuval and Dr. Prudence Fisher as you wind up the Man of War study
3: thank you thank you very much
0: we're going to take a short break here on this special Veterans Day edition of In the Gate but when we come back He was injured twice in battle in the Army during World War II, including at Normandy. But from there, he became one of the gentlest and most eloquent storytellers in the history of electronic media. And horse racing viewers were fortunate that thoroughbreds were one of his regular and favorite assignments. We'll chat with the legendary Jack Whitaker, Corporal Jack Whitaker, after the break. Welcome back to the In The Gate podcast. For half a century, Jack Whitaker's eloquent essays and play-by-play coverage enhanced sports telecasts on CBS and later on ABC. Thoroughbred Racing was experiencing a heyday in the 70s and 80s, and fans from that era will remember Jack Whitaker as a major part of those telecasts.
1: Nobody designed this golf course. Nobody with a pencil and two million dollars and five bulldozers. This was made by nature. It comes out of the ground. It was done with wind and rain and sun and the help of a few sheep. And so while to most Americans and other people, it's not love at first sight at St. Andrews. St. Andrew's old course is like a dry martini, an acquired taste. And as such, it remains with you forever. But before Whitaker
0: was spinning lyrical observations on television, he was an army soldier at Normandy during World War II. He was what was called a replacement soldier. He arrived on the now legendary beach on June 9th, 1944, three days after D-Day. He might even tell you now that 29 years later, to the day, June 9th, 1973, is the day that this happened.
1: Secretariat is widening now. He is moving like a tremendous machine. Secretariat by 12. Secretariat has opened the 22-length lead. He is going to be the Triple Crown winner.
0: Yes, Jack Whitaker was there that day, too, for CBS. Now 94 years young, Jack Whitaker's eyes and ears don't work quite as well as they used to, but his mind remains as sharp as ever. So who better to help us honor Veterans Day, from a thoroughbred racing perspective, than a man after whom I have tried, unsuccessfully I might add, to model myself over the years, one of the preeminent voices in the history of sports television, The great Jack Whitaker is here with us on In the Gate. Now, I didn't know at all until recently about your having been a soldier. You were 20 years old. You found out you'd be headed to Normandy. What was that whole experience
1: like? Well, I've been the luckiest guy you've ever interviewed. (laughs) I was lucky enough to join a crack outfit called the 2nd Armor Division. And I went with them from Omaha Beach to Berlin with two vacations, what we called million-dollar wounds. I was wounded twice, a little more than flesh wound, not life. But both wounds got me out of France over into England. Therefore, I missed the Hurtgen Forest and the Battle of the Bulge, or you wouldn't be talking to me today. So I was so lucky that way. Did Normandy look to you like, you know, the movie
0: Saving Private Ryan? I mean, what did it look like?
1: Private Ryan was a very good uh, replication of it. What was it like being there? Well, I didn't go in on D-Day. I went in on D-plus three. And uh, the most incredible thing, and I keep thinking back to it, there were 3,000 casualties. I never saw a dead body on the beach. However they cleared off all those dead bodies, I have no idea. But it was a tremendously psychological help for, if you saw a lot of dead Americans, you're not going to feel too good. We were in a call, repo Depot replacement depot, and then I was assigned, thankfully, on D plus three to the 2nd Army Division and finally found a home. So I didn't know any of the people in the 29th Division who were killed there or the 30th. Is it true that your division was led by General Patton? At one time at Fort Benning, yes. He was a two-star general head of the 2nd Army Division. What was it like working for him? I don't know. I wasn't with the division then. That was back in Georgia before he became a three-star general. What were your responsibilities then on D plus three? To get off the LST and climb the cliff and join the men and then wait and see where they were going to sign you.
0: What ended up happening then once all of that played out?
1: Well, they I, I came around and picked me up and said, you're going to the 2nd Armored Division, and they're over here. So that's when I joined up with them. D plus 3, June 9th. Now, you were honorably discharged in 1945, around
0: Thanksgiving time. How challenging was it to just pick up and return to civilian life after that?
1: Very easy. <laughs> Oh, it was so good to get home and, and realize that I got through it all right. And, uh, oh, that was no, no problem.
0: The great Jack Whitaker is with us here on In the Gate. So you returned to your native Philadelphia, worked at WCAU Channel 10, and joined CBS. How did you get put on horse racing events?
1: Well, Chris Schenkel was doing the New York Giants, the Masters, I'm a triple crown races for CBS Sports. He left to go to ABC. I inherited the Giants play-by-play, the Masters Tournament, and the triple crown. That's how I got it. The oh. first race I ever did was the Kentucky Derby. Is that a high entry, huh?
0: <laughs> Pretty good place to start. Now, each sport has its own rhythm its own culture, its own cast of characters. What struck you about the racing subculture compared with the other sports that you covered?
1: Well, my favorite story along those lines, Frank Graham and Red Smith were two great sports writers in New York and two great friends. And Frank Graham told Red Smith one day, Red, you ought to come out to the track there are more stories out there than you can imagine. And Red had never done horse racing before and subsequently wrote so many great columns on horse racing because of the people that are in it. The, uh, you don't win much in horse racing. If you win 20%, you're fantastic. But the trainers, the jockeys, the owners, there are a million stories That's what I loved about it. And one of the great ones, of course, was Secretariat. And you were there for CBS. What was that like? I was blessed again, like I was in the Army. I covered horse racing for CBS in the decade of the 70s, which arguably was one of the greatest decades in thoroughbred history. We had three triple crown winners. We had, oh, so in every division... In, in turf racing, in, in fillies, everything. Older horses, forego people. Oh, it was a fantastic time. And uh, again, there were so many great stories.
0: But Secretariat, did he stand out amongst all of them,
1: or was to you he just one of the great stories? Well. The year before, Secretariat was a lovely horse named Reva Ridge who would have won the Triple Crown except it came up rainy on the Preakness and he couldn't handle the mud. So we all heard the great record that Secretariat as a two-year-old was doing. He was winning everything and by big margins. And uh, so we look forward to that and then... He lost the Wood Memorial. The Wood Memorial he lost, and then everybody started to get on him, as gossip around the track will get. So when the derby came up, everybody, oh, he's not going to win. Bold ruler, they're all arthritic, he's not going to make it, can't go a mile and a quarter, blah, 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 blah. And then, of course, he astounded everybody with that marvelous derby. One minute and fifty nine seconds, etc. But up until then, it was people were really knocking him. They were not convinced he was the great one.
0: Heywood Hale Brune, who was another of your friends and oh, contemporaries, oh, a great guy! He said he spoke to Jack Nicholas, the golfer, on the day of the Belmont, and that Nicholas stood in front of his TV
1: and cried. How did it affect you? You were there. I didn't cry, but I was exuberant, of course, because we were all rooting because the Tweeties were became not friends but close friends and uh so and it was such a great story thirty one lengths for crying out loud. and uh there was Mrs. Tweedy waving and, and it was just one of the great days
0: now. One of the not-so-great days that, unfortunately, you were also there for was
1: Ruffian. What was it like to be there that day? Oh, that was awful. Terrible. And uh, it's still terrible when I think about it. We were just absolutely astounded by it. We kept hoping it was going to be all right and all right. Hank
0: Goldberg one of our racing analysts and football analysts for a long time, a contemporary of yours, he said beforehand that match race should never have happened, there should never
1: be one. Did, did you think that going in? Uh, well, I, I had conversations with Frank Wright about it. He was against it, too. Match races are... Whoever gets out first wins.
0: But, you know, running all out, potentially, for a mile and a quarter... Seems, even though the horses were sturdier back then. That's right. Now, you moved to ABC in 1981. Was it a coincidence or not that Wide World started showing the Triple Crown races right around that time?
1: No, I don't A Coincidence, I think, but a happy one for me.
0: <laughs> Your favorite memories or moments from covering horse racing, it could be a specific interview or... A glance that you had one day, or a particular person you'd encounter regularly. What are your favorite moments from covering racing?
1: Going to the track in the morning, uh, hanging around the uh, Frank Frank Wright's barn at Belmont, and uh, watching the workouts, listening to the exercise boys as they come and go. They, they were my favorite moments. It doesn't matter what your age is, that's the same answer everybody gives. Now, you
0: worked four Olympics, one for TNT, the Masters, NFL, of course, the very first Super Bowl. You know, for you, where does horse racing fit in with the sports that you've covered?
1: Second, I like golf. The golf I've done, it's been the Opens and the Masters and and horses. Because the stories are there. There's so many great stories. And were it not for a couple of well-timed
0: injuries, as you mentioned, suffered as a soldier, there's a chance that none of what we just discussed might have happened. I cannot thank you enough. Thank you so much for doing this.
1: Oh, I not
0: Our thanks to the great Jack Whitaker and Doctors Yuval Neria and Prudence Fisher. The Breeders' Cup had everything from the ridiculous to the sublime, Peter Miller winning twice in back-to-back years. The classic didn't go the way Uriah St. Louis had hoped, but getting there reduced the man to tears. It's funny that when two winners came from the indomitable Judmont Farm, owned by the brother-in-law of the Saudi Arabian king, no one at NBC brought up Jamal Khashoggi's death. At that time and place, a grilling wasn't the thing. I know the sport needs risk-takers like owner Ron Paolucci, but his horses didn't belong. They went down an abyss, and Nabel became the first Arc de Triomphe winner to take the turf, proving that jockey Frankie Dettori is ageless. John Sadler came up short twice, but with Accelerate's classic win, Sadler's reputation no longer takes a hit could accelerate deny the Horse of the Year crown to justify, don't you miss a would-be showdown just a bit?